Well, my next guest is Benjamin Schmidt. He joins me tonight from Washington, D.C. He's a former U.S. State Department advisor on European energy. He's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Also a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. I lost count of how many times you and I have spoken over the years about the dangers of Nord Stream 2. You have been sounding the alarm since day one. How do you feel now? Hi, Ben. Hi. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Kremlin File. Today we have Benjamin Schmidt, and we're going to be talking about the weaponization of energy, how Europe, okay, became so dependent on Russia for energy. Olga and Monique, it's so great to be here. Great to see you guys. Um, I will say, as a longtime listener and first-time caller of the Kremlin File podcast, uh, the Rachmaninoff uh, prelude in C is so foreboding and so uh, 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 perfect for the sort of, of topics that we can talk about. European energy security, the saga of Nord Stream 2 certainly matches that foreboding. And I'll say that no episode that you have yet had has actually uh, gotten away from that level of foreboding. So I, I, I have to say um, thank you for having me on. And yes, uh, European energy security. So this is a topic that has long, long, long for decades been a, a major issue. Um, in the transatlantic space, um, you know, in the Soviet era, certainly. Um, and that's where I think we can pick things up, where we, we saw a lot of the issues, structural issues that we see today, um, are, are a relic of that era, uh, in the sense that during the time of the Warsaw Pact, uh, the Soviet Union, the Kremlin, built out energy infrastructure, basically, um, so that you could have uh, the ability to have energy cutoffs to individual client states, you know. So that's why if you look at a um, an, an energy security map or a, a natural gas pipeline map in particular, you'll see that in Central and Eastern Europe, there are kind of what I would basically call this this look of tentacles coming out from mm-hmm. the, the Russian Federation going to uh, states uh, uh, across the Kremlin, uh, sorry, across the... Uh, the, the Warsaw Pact. And so, um, you know, we see uh, pipelines that go to the Baltic states, we have pipelines going to Poland, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the reason for this was that these were not networked, they, these were not aimed at really building resilience among, um, you know, in a, in a diversified market framework, uh, because it was the Soviet era, right? And at the same time, across the full the gap, you have a really well diversified energy market, growing, growing, growing for decades. And so at the onset of, uh, of, of the post-Soviet era, when the, the wall fell, you have really two infrastructure frameworks. You have a really well-diversified network market in the West of Europe and this kind of client state uh, monolithic uh, structure in the East. And, and that's where we can see the, this idea uh, of energy diversification, especially across Central and Eastern Europe, began. Okay, okay. Uh, because uh, yeah, no, it is because I know that. But for example, France didn't follow that; they went towards nuclear. Right? They are less dependent, yeah. but Italy is extremely dependent. Is that simply because Berlusconi was so corrupt? Well, that's 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 a great question. I mean, I, basically, you know, what what I'd like to kind of uh, focus on in this is is you know what were the decisions that were made right after that? So you saw Poland all the way back in 1992 setting out in its energy security strategy, that it wants to diversify away from overdependence on Russian natural resources, in particular uh, oil and gas. Uh, and this took decades to get done, um, but, but indeed it has. Whereas we've seen in Western Europe, this kind of retrograde motion, um, where e- even in the past 10 years, where this was a focus of the, the European Union, um, we've seen countries, including Germany, Austria, Italy, et cetera, become more and more dependent on, in particular, Russian natural gas. And this is really concerning because when we had uh, the, the original um, invasion of, uh, of Ukraine in 2014, the annexation of Crimea and, um, and invasion of the Donbass uh, uh, initially, we had just in the months after that, Brussels coming out and deploying what was known as the European Energy Union Framework, which was to do two things. It was to first build out the energy infrastructure, meaning the uh, pipeline interconnections, electricity grids, et cetera, that would allow for diversification across the EU away from over-dependence on Russia. Hmm. 
And at the same time also, so that's what I call the hardware side of energy security. And the software side of energy security is the market liberalization policies, meaning the, um, you know, the, the, the rollout of the third energy package, all of the sort of um, anti-monopoly uh, mm -hmm. sort of regulations that the, the EU has pushed forward, its gas directive uh, update in 2019, for example, um, to push back on Kremlin monopolization and domination of, of you know, all, all areas of the European market. And so as that was happening, right, in that time, you saw Poland ramp up its efforts. You saw Bulgaria ramp up its efforts. You saw all sorts of countries uh, across Central and Eastern Europe, across NATO's Eastern flank, focus on that diversification. Whereas in Western Europe, it was, you know, almost astonishing, the opposite happened. Push back on the third energy package, push back on the proliferation of the gas directive for the software. And then also developing hardware that would do just the opposite, meaning Nord Stream 2, meaning you know, doubling down on Nord Stream 1, you know, all of these sort of things, Turk Streamline 2, et cetera, where you know you basically had two policies going on as Russia was occupying Ukraine for all of these years. And so in the run-up to that, um, this was a major focus in something that, as I said, there were seeds of even in the early 90s, but um, this was a major focus along NATO's eastern flank. And in something that we've seen now is the success, relatively, that NATO's eastern flank has had to the gas cutoffs that we've seen since the start of the war on, on February 28th. And, mm -hmm. and so this is, this is really important to note because whereas we see Western European countries really, really grappling with, you know, how do we actually diversify away? How do we increase sanctions? How do we roll out these embargoes? Um, and I will talk about Hungary separately because that is that is obviously an outlier that we can talk about. But but Central and Eastern Europe has basically weathered the storm, and and we can talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Olga. Yeah. Yeah. Now with uh, Nord Stream two, we heard so much about this pipeline last year, and you know, finally, finally, and you know, thank you to you because you were raising the alarm all of last year. That's I think right. you must have been uh, dreaming them. Nord Stream two. It's true. Um, it finally got shut down. How much of an impact do you think um it had on Russia? And just to remind everyone, this pipeline literally involved. Uh, during when Putin was um, a KGB agent in Dresden, one of his recruits, who was a Stasi agent, uh, Warnick. what's his name? Warnick. Matthias Warnick, Warnick. yeah. 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 And, um, and then uh, Schroeder, of course, who is you know, mm. known as Putin's man. Um, so how much of an impact did it have? And now, you know, now you're sounding, and you have been sounding, the alarm on Nord Stream 1. How do you see that going forward well look i think we need to step back to where this all began that is Nord Stream one as you mentioned um as i said the the rachmaninoff foreboding this is this is where this that, is that comes in and and the bottom line is in 2000 end of 2005 early 2006 as schroeder was leaving office uh he was approached by the russian federation or the or germany in general was approached by the russian federation to build this pipeline called Nord Stream one and as i understand it in the years before that um, before the Yukos affair and before all of all of the uh, all of that fallout in the early early 2000s, um, the original idea was for Nord Stream One or, or the North European Gas Pipeline uh, Network. It was called at the time uh, was to go all the way to the UK, and this was supposed to be a deal with Tony Blair. Wow! Uh, but Blair turned turned him down after the Yukos affair and after uh, you know a number of other of uh, Putin's early misdeeds. And uh, the next uh, the next step was going to uh, to Chancellor Schroeder and Chancellor Schroeder approved Nord Stream one while in office. Again, then the North European gas pipeline and stepped out of office after losing to Chancellor Merkel in early 2006. And just weeks after leaving, became chairman of Nord Stream AG, the managing company of yeah. Nord Stream one, which was majority owned by Gazprom, you know, Kremlin controlled state owned enterprise Gazprom. Flash forward, you know, that was kind of, if that's that's the kind of the harbinger of what's to come, um, you know, that already, uh, when it came online in 2012, 2013 era, uh, started to reduce gas flows via Ukraine that were going mm. through the Ukrainian gas transmission network, um, although not to the level that Nord Stream 2 was aimed at doing, which was to basically end or significantly reduce gas transit almost to zero. And so we have a situation where 
again, right after the annexation of Crimea and the initial invasion uh, of, of Donbass, we have, um, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, Nord Stream 2, which had been kind of kicked around in the months before that invasion, uh, you know, this idea was put on hold. But it was only put on hold for about a year because in mid-2015, Nord Stream, uh, Nord Stream 2 was announced to move forward. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, you know, nevertheless, uh, of its of its uh, position to undermine the national uh, security, not only of Ukraine uh, in particular, uh, but of Europe as a whole. And I, I will say the personal side of this story is I started at the State Department as European Energy Security Advisor in August 2015. I came in, I'm a, I'm a physicist, so I, I came in as a science fellow thinking I'm going to be there for a year and um, kind of have a neat... Uh, uh, career experience and try to in, inject some science and technology analysis into the foreign policy process. And so I was given uh, to start the Nordic Baltic portfolio, uh, not because it's not important, it's, indeed it is. It's one of the most crucial uh, portfolios in European energy security landscape because it was small for a new person in government. It was just the minimum amount of countries that I could cover uh, being new in government. So Two weeks after I started, Nord Stream 2 was announced through the Baltic Sea. Oh, yeah. And therefore, I was stuck with it ever since. <laughs> I, I So I started the Obama administration. I, I, I ended up uh, you know, being kept on as a career official uh, for four years and didn't leave until uh, mid-2019 uh, to finally uh, you know, continue with my, my science career here at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. So that's, that's kind of, uh, when, you, when you say that I was looking at this for the past year, I'm actually looking for the past about eight years yeah. uh, and nonstop. And so uh, it is, you know, it's important that Nord Stream 2 was stopped, uh, but it was you know, undoubtedly far too late to, to make any sort of impact or difference in Putin's calculation, mm. uh, given that it was stopped just uh, you know, basically uh, 48 hours before the war began, uh, Germany uh, suspended its uh, certification of Nord Stream 2. And then just about 12 hours before uh, the war began, uh, the Biden administration deployed mandatory congressional sanctions mm -hmm. um, that that stopped Nord Stream 2 in its tracks, okay. even though for years folks said that it couldn't be done. And so that was really important to see. And it's really important to note that U.S. sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG and on those senior, um, uh, uh, you know, C-suite officials, including former uh, Stasi agent and Kremlin uh, uh, aficionado and Putin crony and all of those sort of things, uh, Matthias Vanek, uh, they were all sanctioned and the project was stopped. Within a week, yeah. guess what? Okay. They laid off all remaining 120 or so employees and liquidated the company. And uh, there were headlines that that Nord Stream 2 AG, which was based in Zug, Switzerland, uh, but 100% owned and operated by Kremlin-controlled Gazprom. So these narratives that this was somehow a German company that yeah. shouldn't be sanctioned or or this and that, uh, it was a 100% owned Russian company that was physically located in Switzerland um, that was run by uh, you know Putin insiders. And so, um, you know, so that's that's really important to note because the lesson that needs to be learned is that indeed these sanctions and these these sort of energy energy diplomacy approaches that were taken for many years, even if unheeded, were correct. The analysis yeah. was correct, um, and the approach was correct. Um, you know, should uh, you know should should we ever encounter this again? Yeah, no, that's really important to underline. I think. Uh, to follow up, is it fair to say that Russian intelligence services use, um, you know, uh, economic deals and, and like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to also cause friction between, you know, countries in Europe? Because with Nord Stream 2, we saw Eastern Europe and Central Europe, you know, really, really uh, have major issues with Germany, who, you know, mm -hmm. was very reliant on it. So is it fair to say it's also an intelligence operation on top of a money-making deal? Well, I, I wouldn't speak to the intelligence operation side of things, uh, Olga, but I, I, what I will say is this. I, you know, you have a situation in which very clearly energy has been used for many, many years uh, as a conduit for what is known as strategic corruption, what is known mm -hmm. as elite capture, etc., to um, basically 
undermine uh, you know confidence in in you know the decision making process across Europe, and it's a slow burn, right? So back in uh, the mid two thousands, as I said, Gerhard Schroeder, former German, German Chancellor, steps out, approves Nord Stream one, steps out of office, and immediately is is on you know as chairman of the board of Nord Stream AG. Um, and again, this isn't illegal, and I want to point this out. So yeah. the, the 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 fact that you know this is a you know a major concern from us. Uh, looking at this maybe from an American uh, perspective, uh, or at least myself, from uh, you know looking at this, uh, you know from from you know the domestic American politics perspective, is is really interesting because as I have have long said, imagine right now, Monique and Olga, just you know just 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 imagine, I'm imagining. That we have we just just I'm, ready to I'm, imagine. I'm okay. it. Imagine I'm that it. former President uh, uh, Barack Obama or former President uh, uh, George W. Bush. I will set aside another former president, but <laughs> imagine Bush or Obama uh, were currently chairman of the board of China state-owned Huawei. Yeah, It wouldn't just be a story in the United yeah. States. It would be the only story in the United yeah. States until there were legal action. Yeah. And and the, the the fact of the matter is across Central and East, or sorry, across, uh, you know, Western Europe, when we're looking at these, um, you know, these former officials that are, are, have been up until maybe a few weeks ago, for, in some of the cases, working for, um, Russian state-owned enterprises after leaving office, this is not a big deal to the electorate. Maybe it is now, but it wasn't for many years, and it really ought to have been mm -hmm. because it undermines confidence in the democratic process. Yeah. So you had Schroeder, and this is why uh, former uh, Estonian President Tumas Ilves and uh, and and Edward Lucas and, and others, and I, I will name those two because I don't know exactly who claims to have uh, have coined this term, but there was this term Schroederisatia or Schroederization, yeah, this idea of, of strategic corruption. So yeah, yeah. We, we can talk about that if you'd like. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Also too, Ben, another thing that um, besides, let's say, putting on the squeeze uh, politically, um, there are, I've heard the case, especially here in Italy through uh, that they use energy contracts, they skim off the top and then they give some of the uh, the money to political parties. They fund through no uh, energy contracts. Have you ever seen something like that? So in, you know, there's a famous 2000, uh, I believe, 18 spare bank report that went through the three main energy export pipelines that Russia has been developing, was developing and is developing, um, which are Nord Stream 2 uh, from Russia through the Baltic Sea to Germany, natural gas pipeline, 55 billion cubic meter capacity, um, Turk Stream Line 2, mm -hmm. which is a 15 uh, 14.7515 BCMA, uh, billion cubic meters per year. BCMA, if you hear me saying that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about volumes per year. Capacity that's going uh, ultimately to, um, you know, through uh, the the Eastern Balkans and up up to, um, you know, the, the Austrian gas hub at Baumgarten. Um, and those are the two in Europe. And then there's one in, in the Far East, the Power of Siberia pipeline, yeah. um, that was going to China. And they basically set out in this report and walked through where the lion's share of these contracts are going to. And so upstream, you know, if, if you talk about what's in it for the Russian Federation for these projects, um, upstream, uh, the lion's share of the contracts and all of this sort of um, uh, sort of development costs go to uh, the Rotenberg brothers and Tipchenko, right? And you have, uh, you have, you know, these sanctioned oligarchs that are getting these deals. And so that's that's a really big part of this. You know, that that report also pointed out that for uh, Nord Stream 2, it would be something like a decade for uh, um, uh, to to turn a profit for Power of Siberia be a few decades. And then I remember distinctly 47 years it said it would take for Turk Stream Line 2 to turn a profit. Wow. So, I mean, if you if you are an investor, yeah. you know, and calling this just a commercial deal, as we hear, <laughs> you know, heard many, many times. Uh, that this uh, that these projects uh, are are moving forward in, well, guess what? You're not going to get you know get any sort <laughs> of uh, uh, return on your profit in terms of actual profits until uh, you know you know 2060 something like that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like you're going to invest in this and that's just a commercial deal? Come on. So okay, so that's a big concern. So there's there's that kind of you know domestic corruption, you know Kremlin corruption in the Russian Federation. And then there's this, as I said, this this strategic corruption because who followed after Schroeder? So we've seen uh, all sorts of officials basically go on and, and do this um, in that 
interim period. The the maybe we're calling it the pre-war period. I don't know at this mm-hmm. point. But um, the the bottom line is, uh, you know, you had former Austrian foreign minister Karen Kneisel, yeah. with whom Putin danced at her yeah, wedding, exactly. um, uh, 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 leave office after having very pro-Russian policies and statements in support of Nord Stream two. Uh, work for a time as a contributor, or at least was a contributor. I'm not sure, you know, what the arrangement was, but writing for uh, Kremlin-controlled uh, propaganda outlet RT, mm-hmm. and yep. basically, uh, you know, supporting Nord Stream and all these sort of things and statements, and and then uh, just last year was appointed to the Rosneft board, Russian state-owned oil company. Uh, and so that happened. You had former Austrian Chancellor Christian Kern. Uh, you know, penning at the time a uh, very uh, strong letter against U.S. sanctions uh, that were rolled out in uh, 2017 CATSA, the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, that included sanctions on Nord Stream 2, uh, uh, you know, partnering with former um, uh, German Vice Chancellor Zygmar Gabriel to push back on this, uh, this uh, you know, this, this pushback on the Kremlin uh, through a letter. Well, he stepped out of office. He was, he was uh, given a uh, position on the board of Russian railways. Uh, you have former Austrian finance minister um, uh, Hans Dorg Schelling stepping out of office and becoming a senior advisor for Nord Stream 2 AG. You have former French Prime, yeah. Minister, Fran- Prime minister Francois Fillon, yeah, yeah. Francois Fillon, which I, I just quickly coined Fillonization last <laughs> summer just in case so I can get that in. But um, Look, it didn't. It wasn't that long. It didn't last that long. No, but but no, you know, no. bottom line. But he, he did take positions on two boards, uh, and I believe one of them was, uh, as stated, you know, representative of the Russian Federation for a Russian state-owned um, uh, oil and gas trading. Wow. So these are really concerning, yeah. right? And again, none of this was illegal. And that's the that's the thing that I've talked about a lot. I've I, I, I penned uh, two different articles earlier mm-hmm. uh, this year, actually, well, late last year, early this year, one with Paul Massaro mm-hmm. from the Helsinki mm-hmm. Commission, the other one uh, with Casey Michelle. I know you guys yep. know uh, both, both, of, uh, both of them. And, uh, and look, you know, we've written together uh, that, you know, these are unthinkable in the U.S. context, but, but happening. And this is why we need action. To make sure that this never happens again. Yes. Okay. In yep. the past several weeks, we've seen Schroeder uh, step down from the board of Rosneft. We've seen Schroeder step or sorry, Kneisel step down from the board of Rosneft. Uh, you know, and and supposedly turn Schroeder turned down the uh, the offer to be on the Gazprom board. Yeah. Guess what? He's still on the Nord Stream One board, and that's majority owned by Gazprom. So yeah. uh, go figure. But <laughs> but what we need is actual transatlantic action. Yep in terms of either legislation, norms, et cetera, that can say that this isn't okay, that this actually should be blocked, illegal, whatever you want to call it in terms of legislative action, to make sure that this can't happen again, to this idea that you're undermining the trust. Uh, because, you know, there's not some sort of dramatic Ibiza-like quid pro quo that needs to go on to undermine that trust. In fact, I would argue that probably that never happens, right? Because you have a situation where, you know, it's uh, it's kind of the, the monkey see, monkey do approach, right? Yeah. So, yeah. well, well, they did it, and they had a pro-Kremlin policy while in office, you know, ex-official, and uh, they stepped out of office, they got rewarded in this yeah. way. Well, you know, maybe if I even equivocate, and, you know, even if I don't take a pro-Kremlin policy, if I at least don't take an anti-Kremlin policy, which would support, uh, you know, Western democratic norms uh, in the face of all of the sort of malign influence and hybrid threats, et cetera, uh, then maybe this could happen. Again, I don't know exactly that that's happening, but um, but that's cer- sure what the narrative easily becomes when you look at social media, when you yeah. look at expert the expert community, et cetera. And that can undermine confidence. So this is why we we proposed having what um, what we've called the um, uh, the uh, stop helping America's malign enemies act. The Shame Act. Whoa! Okay. Shame. I like it, this. I love it. All right. So, because if shame, if lower, yeah, grazie, grazie. So, if if shame, the the, the lowercase shame doesn't work, then the uppercase <laughs> shame will. Okay. Now, I know that I know that the European governments they 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 likely don't have the the acronym game that our Congress does. But in order to get it through our Congress, you got to have a great acronym. So yeah. We want to start with that, <laughs> and you know. This is the sort of thing that, you know, it's going to take time. But, you know, in, when we're talking about all the sanctions that can go on and that should go on right now, one of the things that can happen 
um, is not only threatening sanctions on the officials that are remaining on these boards, Western officials, but also to just come out and make a joint statement, US-EU joint statement saying that henceforth we will be working towards ending the ability of former officials that were, you know, were, that were in the public trust to then work for authoritarian state-owned enterprises, in particular Russia in this case. Yeah. That shouldn't be controversial. No. I don't know anyone who thinks that that's a bad no. idea. Uh, because why do you need that? There's any sort of career that you can do. You don't have to go work for the Kremlin in this case. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's that's really important. And I think that that's something that just a statement can start setting norms and create a chilling effect. Um, and, and that's what we need to, to look for, even though we're seeing some of these folks uh, begrudgingly resign 100 days into this horrific war against Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, things may be changing a little bit over here on this side. There are a lot of MEPs at the EU Parliament, for example, that are starting to call because it's not just these, you know, these plum contracts, right? These plum jobs with the uh, with the European, sorry, with the energy uh, companies. But there's also lobbying. There's tons of lobbying, right, that is going on and still going on. Okay, so I know that there's, you know, some action there as well. Um, you mentioned Hungary. Okay, just for a minute, then. Uh, you know, Orban is, is a real headache. Okay. And he basically tried to block, right? I mean, he's, he cut out a little bit in, no, in the six sanctions package that the EU put forward. Can you explain that a little bit? And just so that people understand, you know, what kind of bloody headache we have over here with this guy? Sure thing. Um, So in terms of energy sanctions, we haven't seen a lot from the EU significant until this week, uh, frankly. You know, we saw Nord Stream 2 stopped, but it was stopped by U.S. sanctions. Uh, mm-hmm. There haven't been matching sanctions from the EU, and I think that needs to happen to ultimately stop that project for good. Um, and we can talk about future steps on the gas side, but let's talk about oil for a second. So the bottom line is, since the start of the war, the private sector, surprisingly, has avoided the Russian Urals grade. This is the, the grade of, of heavy crude oil that, that comes from Russia uh, that is basically their, their flagship grade. And so because of three things, because of physical security concerns in the Black Sea, because the port of Novorossiysk um, in, in Russia uh, near the Kerch Strait is one of the main ports uh, of export for Russian Urals, uh, and bulk carriers had and continue to be hit by uh, Russian shelling and, and missiles and th- things like this. I'm not sure about missiles, but anyways, they've been hit by munitions um, in an active yeah, mining, zones, mining mm-hmm. et cetera. So, so that, that is concerned that made, made a lot of these ships uninsurable or they've mm-hmm. avoided that uh, for at least some period of time. I think that has picked up again, um, but uh, at least some period of time. Uh, there was the um, concern of the potential for sanctions, that sanctions would be coming out soon. And then also the, um, basically the reputational damage. The concern that if they, you know, especially after Russia's horrific invasion began, uh, criminal invasion began, that they would be kind of caught red-handed with their hand in the cookie jar, right? That, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're the, uh, the firm that is, that is still uh, trading Russian Urals. And so we saw a lot of the production uh, majors, right? Shell and, mm. um, and uh, uh, Exxon and, and uh, BP and others pull out of Russia yeah. very, very mm. rapidly. And this this confluence of factors led the Russian Urals price to drop significantly below the global benchmark price for oil, which is called yeah, Brent. Brent. Um, and that's what's baked into economic indicators, right, throughout the economy. So that really just kept dropping. Mm. It was actually quite surprising. I was I was updating it on Twitter quite regularly and just trying to get that word out there to keep that price low. And the reason for that, with respect to Brent, and the reason for that is even if Russia is still selling some of those volumes, the longer that they are selling it at a discount, um, the more decoupled that those volumes become from what oil traders are considering as part of their their future planning. Hmm. And so that can make it more feasible to do what we've seen this week, which is a larger uh, oil embargo uh, on you know on the Russian Federation from the EU. So the Biden administration took the right step right away, stepped yep. up, and uh, I, I don't remember how many it was a week or two after the invasion began. There were all sorts of proposals on how to uh, you know how to set up you know tariff structures and escrow accounts and things like this for the United States. Well, 
the, the Biden administration did the right thing and stepped in and just said, no, we're just going to embargo this completely. Um, and they can do so because oil is a fungible resource and the United States is not significantly uh, reliant on Russian uh, oil imports. That's harder for the EU, but not impossible. Yeah. It's not as hard as gas in the EU because, again, oil is fungible. Uh, but we had, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, Viktor Orban's government pushing retrograde policy that, um, again, very similar to how Germany had pursued Nord Stream 2 uh, as Central and Eastern Europe had diversified away from Russian energy. So, uh, you know, Germany actually built up its structural dependency by building in projects like Nord Stream 2. Um, uh, you know, Hungary had done the same thing over that time. It supported Turk's streamline too. It signed a long-term gas contract with Gazprom. Uh, we, of course, saw Serbia do that just a few days ago as well. But um, because of that, then the Orban government comes out and says, well, look, our energy security is significantly tied to Russia. We can't do this. It would be very, you know, detrimental. And, you know, they have said out loud, which is, you know, basically a concern across many sectors of Europe that are heavily dependent on on Russia, um, that uh, basically, you know, that they would try to push back on this um, uh, this policy. Uh, but thankfully, most of Europe has come along, whereas Hungary is yeah. now kind of the odd man yeah. out, right? Where they, they're saying, you know, we're basically not going to support these sanctions. We need a cutout for the Darujba South pipeline uh, so that we can get pipeline oil. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Germany working with Poland has said by the end of the year, they are going to be able to end their pipeline dependence on Russian oil, which is fantastic. So Warsaw basically... Uh, worked with Berlin to um, to bring oil volumes from the Gdansk terminal through the Polish uh, domestic oil pipeline network into Germany. So that's that's incredibly important. Orban has done the opposite, basically saying, you know, we're, we're going to continue this. Uh, and I, I don't know, indefinitely, presumably. And the, part of the problem with these these sanctions thus far is we don't have the full uh, report of what, what is going on yet, because I don't think they've actually officially voted no, on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's going to happen later yeah. this week or hopefully as soon as possible. But the bottom line is, um, you know, that will cut out two thirds of maritime oil traffic to the EU. Um, but still leave this significant source of revenue. So all of those ideas that were going on at the start in the United States context, so increasing tariff rates so that, that you know traders will select against Russia uh, you know, because it's just simply more expensive, um, or, or setting up these sort of escrow accounts where you have this special payment mechanism uh, that, yeah, they will import oil from Russia, but Russia won't actually get this, um, you know, get these revenues until certain thresholds are met. Uh, I would hope that uh, getting out of Ukraine and restoring its full territorial integrity is that sort of threshold yeah. for any sanctions discussion in the future. Uh, but that's really important um, to, to know. And um, the other thing I will say is, uh, you know, something that is starting to be in the headlines that that I've been calling for for several years in particular is the um, either ending the ownership or expropriation of the ownership of Russian uh, state-owned oil and gas firms of European energy critical infrastructure. Mm. And so what I mean by that is like Rosneft uh, has an ownership stake in the Schwett refinery in Germany. And we have, uh, you know, Gazprom owning um, uh, gas storage facilities all across Western Europe and Germany, Austria, et cetera. And so the problem with that, you might say, okay, well, they own this, but it's still critical infrastructure. So, you know, what, what can the harm be? Well, this whole idea, when you mentioned weaponization of energy, Last year, this was the big debate around Nord Stream 2 because the Biden administration came out and cut this quote-unquote deal uh, with, uh, with yeah. Germany to waive sanctions on Nord Stream 2 if, if, if Russia weaponized mm -hmm. energy. And the Merkel uh, uh, administration basically refused to come out and say that they yeah. weaponized energy when they absolutely yeah. had. And basically what the, what the you know, certain German officials were hiding behind was that Indeed, Russia hadn't specifically done any dramatic gas cutoffs or, um, or, or broken a you know contractual obligation um, like we're seeing now. Um, we sh we should we should chat about that in a second. But um, but yeah. but what they were doing was because Gazprom, for example, owns a lot of these storage facilities, they were not taking what they do every year normally this normal market step to inject additional volumes into those mm. storages ahead of the winter. So they were intentionally yeah. creating scarcity in the gas market in the EU, which by any definition, all the expert community that I, I, I uh, you know, engaged with agreed that this was weaponiz weaponization of energy. But nonetheless, uh, Germany did not admit that. 
And when the Schultz government came in early on, although the Greens rapidly admitted that, mm -hmm. Habeck and um, uh, and um, and in Foreign mm -hmm. Minister Baerbach and others, right, had had admitted that Schultz himself didn't. Right. Schultz also went on Jake Tapper earlier this year before the war and refused to yeah. decry yeah. Schroeder uh, being yeah. on these boards. And so, um, you know, this is a rapid turnaround. And, and thankfully, they have come around and Nord Stream 2 has stopped. But the reason that we are in this place of scarcity now is because there was no action taken then ahead of this war. And, and it needed to happen. This this, you know, calling a spade a spade. This is energy weaponization. And that's so fundamental because, you know, areas of foreign policy that are you know, often, you know, focused on our national security policy and things like this, you know, military security, all those sort of things. And that's incredibly important. We need to focus on arming Ukraine as quickly as possible with the most advanced weaponry that we can possibly uh, uh, support them with to push back on Russian aggression. But in terms of the transatlantic security space, how much has energy been in the headlines? I mean, yeah. all the time. It's it's directly related yeah. to everything yeah. we're talking about. And for years, it was always considered, I felt at, at events and, and things like this, as this important but then niche issue that we need to kind of set aside. There's there's kind of the energy nerds and the scientists, and that's like, we got to do this separately. And this is why, you know, we, we need this, um, you know, what my colleague uh, at Duke in, um, that I'm, I'm collaborating with, uh, 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 Ambassador Pearson is called the anticipatory diplomacy approach, looking over the horizon at these kind of what may be considered niche science and technology relate adjacent or related issues, and actually taking steps to mitigate them early before they become a crisis. Because we can see what has happened in Central and Eastern Europe is that they built out the infrastructure needed to weather yeah. this storm, whereas Western Europe, which is having the issues with actually uh, moving forward with these sanctions as rapidly as is needed, did not. So Poland, for example, this year has, uh, you know, over the past several years, has opened the Schwinowiska LNG terminal yep. on the coast. It's uh, opened the the first half of the uh, the Baltic pipe project from Norway to Denmark to Poland. So it's open from Norway to Denmark and will in the next few months be open to Poland. Uh, the gas interconnector Poland-Lithuania opened up just a few weeks ago and just days after that. Uh, Poland imported LNG via the aptly named Independence Terminal at uh, Klaipeda, <laughs> Lithuania, um, and has taken all sorts of other steps. Bulgaria yeah. uh, is about ready in the next week or so to open the long delayed but uh, in progress gas interconnector um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Greece, uh, Bulgaria, IGB, uh, interconnector Greece, Bulgaria. Uh, and has announced that it's going to be um, building an LNG terminal, mm -hmm. floating sort of mm -hmm. gasification unit at Ellingsendropolis, just south of that uh, that um, that that IGB pipeline. And additionally, is going to be and and has been contracting gas volumes uh, to be imported via LNG through the Revathusa terminal near Athens, through the Despa network north to the um, uh, the the interconnector. Uh, with Bulgaria. So these are the sort of steps that have been taken. And so when first in line for the gas cutoffs, Poland and Bulgaria fell, uh, guess what? They were resilient and ready to yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and so each time that this has happened, that's that's really you know important to remember that the right steps were taken by NATO's eastern flank and Western Europe needs to take a book out of those countries' energy security. I agree. I agree. It's It's looking at, you know, what you said before, I think the, it's more of a holistic approach. Right. You were saying, no, the way it's niche and that kind of thing. But we should be looking at this right as a holistic picture. OK. And, you know, they found alternatives. Finally, they found alternatives. It's not yeah. like they, they, they mm -hmm. weren't there. You know yeah. what I mean? There was technology. Well, they yeah, were exactly. prepared for I mean, it. we wasted so much time. There was so much time and so much money given over to Russia in this period. Right. Yeah. Up to the up to the yeah. run up. Sorry, Olga, I, I interrupted. Yeah, no, and it's it just shows you because I mean Russia was putting the pressure for there to achieve their yep. strategic goals because they knew that they were planning mm -hmm. their assault on Ukraine and they wanted to kind of give a taste of pain to Germany and you know Western Europe in the case they attempt to try you know to respond uh, in a harsh way, which Russia does this all the time, all you know, time. regardless whether it's a uh, hey, quote, invasions, annexations, assassinations, or, you know, any other of their agreements. Cyber attacks, yeah. uh, uh, election yeah. interference, poisonings, uh, yeah, you yeah. name it, space Just weapons launches, which they did at the end of last year, and all sorts yeah, of things. exactly.
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Weaponizing mm-hmm. uh, migrants yeah, last Belarus, year on Belarus's right. border yep. to, again, threaten Germany, you know, if you happen to side with United States and Ukraine against us, this mm-hmm. is what we can cause right. for you in the future. So, I mean, it is something that, you know, that they do, not just, you know, for yeah. that. Where do you see this going? Because uh, Russia at this point is still making about $800 billion, no, $800 million a day, which is yeah. funding their war in Ukraine. So where do you see this going in the future? Like how, you know, quick do you see them running out of, you know, or at least the funds uh, stopping? Well, look, I mean, it, it's going to take time. And it's time that we don't have. It needs to just show yeah. effectively. It needs to go to zero yeah. today, right? And that's if Embargo. it needed to go to so zero yesterday, today, yesterday, the day before yesterday, etc. But we need to take steps that can be implementable. Um, I think that you know one of the things that needs to happen in Europe is uh, you know European leaders need to kind of have a direct to camera look. You know, looks right into the heart of their uh, uh, um, you know their 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 you know, their electorate and say, we need to make sacrifices. We need, we know that we need to make sacrifices. We don't want to have boots on the ground yeah. in the future. Uh, you know, we're going to take a few quarters of economic yeah. pain to do so. So to, to limit the ability of Russia to continue its egregious war of aggression against Ukraine. And also so that they have less of ability to threaten us in the future, EU. And and that yeah. that I don't feel like that has happened in the way that is necessary in a monumental yeah. kind of uh, you know defining moment. Um, you know Germany has talked about this as being a Zeitenwende, but we've of no, course seen please. all sorts of uh, uh, vendas <laughs> back and forth. Um, you know, and uh, you know it, it, this is from a country that is uh, you know Schultz's party had supported uh, Vondel yeah. durch Handel, this tr- change through trade approach for decades, and that's going to take. Time, because what we saw over those decades was basically uh, a whole lot of of Handel without much Vondel, right? So a lot of a lot of trade with no 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 cha- no change. I'm using that, uh, Ben. The, yeah, all I'm of using this, that. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's 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 gone from you know this uh, flow, this idea that we're going to flow liberal democracy and I mean, regulatory norms and open markets and all the yeah. things that. Uh, that we hold dear, um, you know, in in uh, you know global democratic societies are going to somehow flow up into the Russian Federation. That didn't happen. Strategic corruption yeah. flowed down, and and you know this willingness to look the other way uh, when it came to all of those sort of egregious actions, whether they, as you said, you know, weaponization of basically every yeah. sector. And this is something that you know when yeah. I throw out this this. Uh, mantra, not just a commercial deal, not just a commercial deal, not just commercial deal. The reason I say that is that so many times um, European leaders have pointed out, and Merkel said this a lot, that these the Nord Stream 2 is just a commercial deal. You know, we'll set that aside. You can't compartmentalize. You, we, can, we can in the West because we have a private sector that's actually private, right? So these are just commercial deals, uh, yeah. and we can comment on them, but they don't have a direct impact on yeah. national security decisions in a lot of cases. Sometimes they do, but but the bottom line is Russia having a command economy controls through all of these these pseudo companies, but they're de facto ministries. Gazprom is effectively the Ministry of Foreign mm-hmm. Gas Policy or for you know foreign gas affairs and influence. Um, and and that's that's something that is just kind of overlooked, right? That this idea that well, um, you know, we have this solid approach to national security where folks are thinking about military security or cyber or this or yeah. that. And those are all really important, but you have to have that cross-cutting ability to look at these and recognize these are multidisciplinary issues, not because they necessarily are for us, but they certainly yes. are for them because Putin can pull all of these levers exactly. whenever he wants. Right. And that's, and that's, that's really important to remember. So uh, in terms of what happens next, we need to remember that this isn't going to change. Right. As, as long as Russia is an authoritarian mm-hmm. nation is, you know, and, and as long as we have this, this struggle that is going on between um, investments uh, from the, you know, between the West and authoritarian nations, it's going to be very difficult to overlook these issues. And, and the problem is, again, these are often treated, even now they've been treated as niche. Maybe it's moving in the right direction, but so many panel events and things like this, you have these discussions where it's a. This is going to be a debate yeah. over Turkstream. This is going to be a debate over Nord Stream Two. This is going to be a debate over Huawei, and each of those issues, they all yeah. are the same issue, right? But they each of them have this sort of. 
it's it's as if they are standalone unique issues and the bottom line is you need to take this cross-cutting approach that's in many of these cases based on science and technology analysis and i mean that broadly and specifically uh because they have a stem background to bring into the national security and foreign policy process this level of rigor that's needed to see that energy security is a vehicle for disinformation it's a vehicle for uh it's a vehicle for uh mm -hmm. elite capture mm -hmm. and strategic corruption and cyber and all of the sort of attacks that make it you know make yeah. our yeah, yeah leverage make our yeah. countries less resilient and less able to push back on authoritarian um you know authoritarian nations so the sort of things that need to happen soon are further steps i i just said this um in an interview with the independent this morning uh the the bottom line is it's great that this sanctions package was taken it's great that there's two-thirds of the oil is going mm -hmm. to be embargoed but we need to get to 100 yeah. percent as quickly as possible and we need to start looking at at natural gas which is uh, a tougher nut to crack certainly but not impossible so there needs to be a wartime level of effort, not this sort of, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, discussion like, like, you know, this isn't, there's not a war going on. Like, okay, well, we'll, we'll build this yeah. floating storage of gasification unit at some yeah. point in the future or whatever. So thankfully, German minister Habeck has come out, energy minister, climate minister has come out and, and uh, you know, talked about the need and, you know, broke ground on new floating storage of gasification unit terminals uh, in um, northwestern uh, mm -hmm. Germany. Mm -hmm. Incredibly important. There was an announcement this morning of a joint Dutch-German uh, natural gas uh, exploration project in the North yeah. Sea. That's important. Um, and, you know, one of the things I would like to see is, you know, a lot of the onshore infrastructure takes time to develop to actually connect to these uh, terminals, even if it's, uh, you know, takes time. Guess where there's a lot of onshore infrastructure ready to connect to something? Lubmin, Germany, where Nord Stream 2 connects. So why go. not throw an FSRU and design this to sit out in the Geiswald of Boden and connect it right up to Nord Stream 2 and bring LNG from global sources into the EU? It would not, not only physically block Nord Stream 2 in the future, it would send a message to the Kremlin that we are yep. no longer uh, open for business to authoritarian you know, influence and are open to global... Uh, democracies. And it doesn't have to be from the United States. You know, there was always through that time, I was always pushing back on this notion that, quote unquote, the only reason that the United States opposed Nord Stream 2 is because yeah. we want to sell our LNG. Well, guess what? We don't have, when I was in the State Department, I didn't pick up the phone and call a company that's, <laughs> hey, you know, you and, and say, you got to send it here, you got to send it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. you know, countries that don't have that, uh, you know, that that background, you know, oftentimes would you know, I think that's that's kind of this this trademark of energy diplomacy, where there's an assumption in certain parts of the world that you know any country can do this. You just pick up the phone, call a company. We don't have an America problem, right, in in the United States, and as a result, we're you know where does most of our you know most of our gas was going in that period to South America and Southeast Asia because that's where the market took it, yeah. right, and so. So yeah. that's really important to uh, remember is is that, you know, these sort of pieces of infrastructure need to be developed. I know that mm -hmm. Poland is moving forward. They're trying to move forward as quickly as possible with an LNG terminal at Gdansk. So there's a lot of that that needs to go on. There needs to be further liberalization policies uh, that are pushed um, and, uh, you know, to make even more robust the, the EU third energy package. Um, and also... Uh, you know, basically develop um, uh, the ability through legal, regulatory, legislative measures to, as I said, expropriate uh, from yeah. Gazprom, from Rosneft, their ownership stakes in these critical energy facilities. That should have really never happened, yeah. frankly, to begin yeah. with. But the fact yeah. that we're in a wartime contingency, it's not just a, a conflict of interest. It's, I mean, it's yeah. a national security threat. So that's got to happen to get yeah. to a point where uh, Nord Stream 1 can be blocked and shut down. Turk Stream 2 can be blocked, shut down. Ultimately, the Ukrainian gas transmission network needs to kind of be the last uh, last gas transit from, from Russia to be shut down, and then that will that will be it. But the bottom line is, uh, you, I think that to a large extent, the Ukrainians were right in their assessment for a long period of time that their gas transmission network is a national security yep. asset. This is something that the yep. Nord Stream 2 uh, folks, uh, you know, uh, supporters would would never accept. But the bottom line is it's still operating today. There have been some uh, areas that have been damaged, but to a large extent, I think the Russians have avoided catastrophic uh, strikes on the entire gas transmission network, in part because they realize that they're still getting revenues from, from gas yeah. through Ukraine, from a country that they are invading um, uh, into mm -hmm. the EU. So 
so the bottom line is, you know, these sort of statements need to be taken. There needs to be taken on strategic corruption. And you know, they said the Stop Helping America's Blind Enemies Act or shame. Uh, these sort of things all need to happen. And there also has to be a, I, I will just plug this, even though it's broader maybe than energy, is that there needs to be an additional approach taken to increase our um, science and technology assessments of uh, export controls, which I know go on from the West, but there just needs to be an even higher level of this going on to make sure that any dual use technologies can't be used yeah. by the Russian Federation for yep. its war making capabilities, because we've seen headlines all over the place in the past month that, um, you know, Russians are using commercial semiconductors. They're using, you know, spare parts yeah. from washing yeah. machines and, yeah. uh, and, and other commercial appliances in their weapon systems. So, you know, that means that this is working. Uh, there is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, something to be said for uh, when, when Russia launched its direct ascent anti-satellite mm -hmm. weapons test in November, um, uh, you know, that, that there can be dual use in the space sector. So any continuing, com uh, you know, uh, uh, collaborations between research entities mm -hmm. like NASA or the European Space Agency with Roscosmos uh, need to be really, you know, very well managed. And, and I, I, you know, there's pros in these places that can do this, but I just want to make sure that this is always on the top of mind that there cannot be to the greatest extent possible technical systems that are, are you know, sent and reused, and then reused yeah. in the, uh, you know, in the war making capability yeah. that Russia yeah. has on yeah. And just to add to what uh, Ben said, I mean, for decades, Russia, you know, always envisioned Ukraine as a satellite state, and they yeah. used energy as Absolutely. leverage. And for political capture, and just in general, stuff, you know, yeah. to... to Absolutely. So, I mean, to the point that mafia was controlling sure. gas pipes at one point, you know, and then uh, divvying up the the skimming off it and divvying up the, the profits. Um, do you think it was announced Saudi Arabia moving over to, you know, another evil? Mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia announced <laughs> that they will be mm -hmm. um, increasing. They are prepared to increase oil um, output to cover Russia's shortage. Uh, do you think that's going to have any effect, at least in the short term? Uh, it could. Sorry, Olga, I thought you were going to ask about the Live Golf League. I don't know if you're following that, but this whole controversy with oh, yeah, I saw uh, that. the Saudi Golf League with Phil Mickelson, <laughs> this is coming to a head in the golf. I'm a golf fan, but uh, in that. the golf community, this is coming to a real head. And that's and it's funny. I'll just tell you this because I haven't said this to anyone, but uh, I was I was on a, a trip a few weeks ago and sitting there in the middle of the night watching the Golf Channel, uh, which just shows how um, you know much of a nerd that I could possibly be. But before the PGA Championship, uh, Brandel Chamblay and others on this show are literally having a debate in the golf world of just a commercial oh, deal versus not just a commercial God. deal. We can't trade oh, with authoritarians. You know, what Phil Mickelson is doing is bad. Well, he's just trying to make a buck. Yeah. And, and all the others, you know, Dustin Johnson, et cetera. So look, you know, in the golf world, this is happening with authoritarian nations. So if that's, and I said, I said, gosh, I don't know if this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a sign of what's to come. But if if we're talking about this, you know, the same arguments that are going on for years in the energy space are happening in the golf world. I mean, my God. So yeah, okay. So Saudi Arabia, uh, aside from their their adventures with yeah their their adventures with uh, Gary Player and the Live Golf League, look, they really, um, you know, they they can make a difference uh, uh, if they ramp up production, and I, I hope that happens. Um, but you know, ultimately, we need to get to a point where we are less and less reliant on energy resources yeah. from authoritarian yeah. nations, period, right? Period. Yep. So this this idea early on, well, maybe the United States can swap some of its its uh, Russian imports for yeah. Venezuelan imports. Yeah. And, you know, th as I said, oh, thankfully, God. the yep. Biden administration yep. immediately just said, no, we're just going to have an embargo, period. So, but, um, you know, because of mm -hmm. course, Rosneft is, mm -hmm. is in Venezuela, in Venezuela exactly. as well. So it's, so you're just playing this authoritarian shell game and, you know, you know, Obviously, China is, you know, waiting in the wings and all this sort of stuff, but we need to get to a point there. And we can do this because we can also uh, address the climate crisis at the same time. I really cringe at the sort of uh, headlines that have come out in the past few months while people are dying uh. in, in Ukraine that say, you know, are the, you know, can... Uh, you know, the war in Ukraine be an opportunity to solve yeah. the climate crisis. Well, I think that's a poor framing. I think it's a poor framing. But there is something to be said about the fact that for the longer term, we need to deploy renewables at scale. We need to develop more 
uh, through basic science and technology investment more uh, uh, to get to grid scale energy storage. Obviously, um, you know, long term, you know, physics projects, basic physics projects are important. I started my career uh, in high school and then an undergraduate working in a um, a, uh, a laser fusion energy facility in the University of Rochester. And the bottom line is that's our yeah. future, right? Uh, you know, in this case, probably tokamak-based uh, magnetic confined fusion um, to, to be a base load that's still, you know, 10, 20 you know, years off. It was, you know, the old joke was it's 40 <laughs> years off and uh, it's been 40 years off for 40 years. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't continue to invest in these long-term strategies. But the point is that, we can solve the climate crisis and we should take this as a rallying point. Again, I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't call it an opportunity, but it is certainly a wake up call. Yeah, exactly. It's a wake up call. And, and the bottom line is it, the bottom line is getting to these sort of, uh, 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 you know, these sort of, these sort of points where we can uh, become less dependent mm -hmm. and more, um, you know, more able to cut down on, on CO2 emissions through hydrocarbons. You know, I've mentioned, we've been talking a lot about hydrocarbons on this podcast. That does not mean that I support, uh, you know, that right. is the primary and right. only goal in the future. Uh, that's, that's quite the opposite. But in the very shortest term, we have yeah. a national security contingency yeah. that we have to deal with now. And if that means drilling a little bit more right now, if that means building more import infrastructure, it's got to happen to stop the war yes. and stop the killing and stop the war crimes that are going exactly. on right now. Okay, we can solve the climate crisis and we can, we should, and um, but we can do two things at once. And so we need to set in place because exactly. it's going to take years to build build more wind yeah. farms, more hydroelectric, more, all, you know, all, all of the above, solar, photovoltaics, et cetera, uh, all around the world. Uh, so we should be heading the accelerator as much as possible even right now. Uh, but that's not going to help uh, the immediate contingency. Right. That's going to help us three or four years down the road. Yeah. We may still be in this contingency two, three or four years down the road. That's no. why we have to invest in the renewables mm -hmm. and the climate crisis uh, yep. solutions right now. But um, it's got to be yeah. everything at once. Yeah. And it can be done where there's a will, there's a way. And it's this is, you know, this is what we've been saying as well. You know, there is a political will. You can get it done. I mean, they did things yeah. very quickly, you know, in two weeks' time, Absolutely. as you were saying, Ben, right? The Germans from one moment, oh, no, it's just a contract, and then, you know, close it off. I mean, come on, yeah. right? Come on. That's right. But anyway, so. That's right. What about what about uh, the financial stuff? I mean, I didn't think in my lifetime I would see ever you know, yeah. the amount of sanctions on oligarchs and the companies. And I mean, I've been screaming to the wind for decades of that, you know, these oligarchs are funding uh, terrorist operations, uh, wars, disinformation operations, operations to subvert democracies. And, you know, and for the most part, every time Russia, again, committed any kind of atrocities, like trying to assassinate Navalny or the Skripals or assassinating, you know, uh, people and invasions, yeah. the lobbyists would water down the sanctions and it would end up, you know, being some, some like random person that yeah, no one exactly. knows of and has no effect yeah. being sanctioned inside of Russia. So, I mean, and look how quick it took. I mean, when I saw, you know, that they announced that Russia launched their assault, yeah, suddenly boom. within like yeah. 48 hours, I see the first Yes. Yeah, and I'm like, so yes. you've had the mechanism yeah. to do this yeah. this whole yep. time, despite what Russia did in Syria, despite what Russia did with Ukraine. I mean, Russia's been running a concentration yes. camp in Ukraine since 2015, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that was overlooked. And yeah. suddenly here, mechanisms are there, everything, you know. It's good, at least it's done now, but I mean, it's really, we could have avoided yeah, a lot of I'll, this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'll, I'll just say that, I mean, I was asked, I, I went on Deutsche Welle just a few days after the invasion, and the first thing that Brent Goff asked me when I was on the on the show was, you know, you've been mm -hmm. sounding the alarm on all this for years, you know, what do you have to say now as if, like, I'm going to come out with some tri <laughs> triumphalist uh, thing. I said, no, we failed. We failed. Yeah. They invaded Ukraine. I mean, sorry, they reinvaded at a yeah. larger scale Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, the bottom line is, you know, we can do that Monday morning quarterback later, yeah. but, um, I think it's important to not, uh, you know, not have these kind of rose colored glasses as we look back, we need to have an honest self-assessment of, of what went right, what went wrong, uh, not to point blame, but rather to yeah. just know what to do yeah. in the future. 
period. Like, you, you know, those yeah. who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And this is exactly why we need to have an honest assessment, Excellent. an honest analysis of the energy security policies that have gone on, what has worked, what in energy diplomacy has been mm -hmm. successful, because there's been a lot. Obviously, I mean, we've seen all these projects come online, Central Eastern Europe that have uh, have done this, but, um, you know, have, have made them more resilient to these gas cutoffs that are going on, which, of course, had uh, the Netherlands and Denmark and Finland added mm -hmm. to the list in just mm -hmm. the past few days. So that, yep. just, that list is growing. And, um, you know, that's that's got to happen. But this honest self-assessment um, and I don't know when the appropriate time is, um, given the, uh, the ongoing you know wartime, but. Um, you know, it's going to be helpful for national security policy as yeah. we go forward, right? We make yep. the right decisions in the future and become more uh, open to um, anticipatory diplomacy steps, more open to science and technology-based um, uh, uh, you know, solutions on not only energy, but basically in, infusing that into the national security yep. and foreign policy process. Uh, because yeah. again, we, we, you know, all over the world are being siloed uh, across these disciplines. And it's it's often this, you know, well, what is the, that? This has, energy has nothing to do with oh, disinformation. God. Energy has nothing to do with cyber. No, no, you know, and like, it's and all likewise, the same, exactly. And for it's Russia, all the same, it's all the, all the same. same. And so it's same for yeah, China and yeah. same for most authoritarian nations because they are command exactly. economies. So. Thank you for- I know, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much because it definitely, I yeah. mean- a very overlooked issue that is probably exactly. one of the more important ones, you know, that should exactly. needs exactly. a shining light but, on. Well, thank you so much. And thank you both, Olga and Monique, for all that you do. Um, this podcast series is one of many things that you do that is so important um, to raising these issues and, and making a difference. So, um, you know, it's it's noticed in the uh, policy thank community you. and uh, at least one Aww, physicist thanks. notices it as well. So Beautiful I appreciate heart. that. I can't do this thing. Thank but, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, of I, know. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just made the Batman logo. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, KremlinFile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordy Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>